The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Now today is a standalone message. I am going to talk to you all today about the concept, the topic of doubt. This is a standalone message, Gary, um, where we finished up, Gary finished up Daniel last week, and we're going to start something else next week. And uh, I wanted to talk to you guys this morning about the topic of doubt. Um, this is very close to my heart just as a high school pastor and as a pastor in general. It's not just high schoolers that deal with doubt, right? Everyone deals with it on some level. And what I'm talking to this morning about really comes from a book I read recently called uh, Doubting by Alistair McGrath. Now, Alistair McGrath, he speaks with a British accent, which makes him instantly smarter than any of us in the room. Um, <laughs> But he also teaches at Oxford as well. And so this is an intellectual read, but it's not like over-your-head type intellectual. Um, It's actually a pretty short read. I would highly recommend you get this book and read it for your summer reading pleasure. And I would love for you to uh, dive into this book as well. So we're discussing this topic. And I know, you know, as a high school pastor, I've I've seen so many students come through high school ministry and say all the right things and do some amazing things, but then walk out, um, graduate from uh, high school, and also graduate from their faith. I've seen it happen over and over again. And I think it all goes back to this one issue of how they handle doubt. I think it ties back to this one, one big issue of how they handle doubt. And we know in our world today, it's really cool to doubt and question everything, isn't it? Um, if, if you know someone at work or, or at school who's like this, the person who is skeptical or questions everything, that person just has like an air of mystery about them, do they not? Like you, you feel like you can't really break into the mold of who that person is. And we see this, I think, in, in our lives. We see that that person who is the doubter and the skeptic and they question and doubt everything, that person just seems like the smartest person in the room. And so it's cool to question everything in our culture today. In fact, I have an uncle who lives in Houston, and he is an extremely intelligent guy. He is a guy, he's in his mid-60s now, but he got his PhD, then he went to med school. And so just wicked smart. He has words on his resume that I can't even pronounce. Really intelligent guy, but he um, is someone who is an atheist. And he works at MD Anderson. He's a doctor down there. He's an anesthesiologist. He works with pacemakers, he work, speaks all over the world about pacemakers, and um, in that world, he's kind of a known guy, and yet um, he's an atheist. And recently, he was diagnosed with a brain tumor, a bad brain tumor. And so my wife and I were in, in Houston recently, and we decided, I decided while she was at a conference, I was going to take him from appointment to appointment because he can't drive. He's having seizures. And in our conversations, the, the funny thing is, he'll actually dialogue with you. He'll actually talk about these things with you. He's not afraid to talk about these things. And I began asking questions like, you know, where do you feel like you stand right now as you walk through this, this trial and this cancer? And he said, he said, he says, Dave, you know where I stand? He goes, I don't believe any of that stuff. He said, I, I'm fine with there being no purpose to my life. I'm okay with that. I've come to, I'm, I'm fine with that. And I thought, man, how tragic is it? And every question I ask or everything I pressed on, it seemed like um, he had a response for it. And as a Christian, it's very intimidating to be around this kind of person, right? It, it, it just, it can really challenge your faith. And it's not just people like him that have doubts. I think Christians have doubts as well. 
Have you ever had a time in your life when you just questioned everything? Have you had a time in your life where you just, where, where it just seems like Christianity makes no sense to you? I think there are times when Christianity makes perfect sense. Like when I'm reading the, the, the Old Testament and I'm reading the Ten Commandments, and I see those Ten Commandments, those make sense to me. Because you see in the world that we live in, if you don't follow those things, then life will go bad for you. You can't just go murdering people, right? So we see that things can make sense when you're reading certain parts of the Bible, but other parts of the Bible really challenge you and it makes you question and go, man, if I was having to present the story of Jonah to like an unbeliever, man, that's a hard sell. And it makes you start to ask questions like, well, man, does my faith make sense? Do I really believe this stuff? And so there are times where it makes perfect sense. Other times where I think it makes, um, it can make, it's difficult to make sense of it. The good news is that C.S. Lewis, the great C.S. Lewis, felt the same way. He said this quote, When I pray, I wonder if I'm not posting letters to a non-existent address. Mind you, I don't think so. The whole of my reasonable mind is convinced, but I often feel so. The great C.S. Lewis, I think, highlights two kinds of, two types of doubt in this quote. The first is what we call intellectual doubt, what we think, and then personal doubt, what we feel. And I think many of you can relate to C.S. Lewis's quote. When you pray, ever feel like no one's there? Ever feel like your prayers are hitting the ceiling? And this is where a man like C.S. Lewis often found himself. But I think he highlights two kinds of doubt. Intellectual, what we think. Personal, what we feel. Intellectual would be things like, how do I know the Bible's true? How can I believe in a heaven and hell? What about science and Christianity? Personal doubt, I think, is a little bit different. These are questions of suffering. These are questions of maybe your life doesn't look the way you thought it would at this stage of your life. And you're asking lots and lots of questions, why? And so we have intellectual doubt, we have personal doubt, what we think and what we feel. And I want to define for us this morning what doubt is and what it is not. Um, We throw the word doubt around quite a bit, but here's what doubt is not. Doubt is not skepticism. It's not the decision to question everything. It's also not unbelief. It's not the decision to not have faith in God. Now, doubt can certainly lead to these two kinds of things, but them by themselves, I would not define as the kind of doubt we're going to talk about today. The kind of doubt we're going to talk about today, I define it this way. McGrath defines it this way in his book. He says, asking questions or voicing uncertainties from the standpoint of faith. Now, some of you might say, well, I didn't know I was allowed to have questions and doubts and faith. Those seem like polar opposites, but my goal this morning is to show you that that's not true. So where does doubt come from? What is doubt's cause? How many of you were raised in the church? Raise your hand. Okay, a large portion of you. So I think you can agree with this statement. Most of us, we learn about Christ when we're young. And you're you're taught about Christ by your parents, most likely, and you're taught about Christ at a time when you believe everything your parents tell you. You you come to believe in Christ at the same time that you come to believe in Santa Claus, the Tooth Fairy, and the Easter Bunny, right? And then there's that mean kid at school who reveals that Santa's a hoax and the Tooth Fairy is really your parents and somebody killed the Easter Bunny. Anybody here, were you that mean kid in school? Raise your hand. Okay, no one in the service. Uh, this guy over here, okay. You look like that kind of a guy, by the way, yeah. Um, so, 
so many of us, as, as you enter into your teenage years, you begin to have doubts, and you feel like church is a place where you're not allowed to have doubts. So you sweep it under the rug. You, you don't, don't want to deal with it because you can't deal with your doubt in church. Church is not a place where you can, you can be a lot of things in church, but usually honest isn't one of them, right? So we struggle with seeing church as a place where we're allowed to doubt. And so my hope this morning is that if you find yourself in a place where you see the church being a difficult place to talk about these kinds of things, I hope today shifts your perspective a bit and allows you to open things up a bit where you begin to see, no, church is the place where I should be able to deal with these kinds of questions and these kinds of issues. We try to tailor our junior high and high school programs at the Outback with this in mind. Like my goal is not to just give them some little 10-minute devotional, pizza, volleyball, okay, y'all go play. The goal in the Outback is always we got to push them. We have to push them. We have to get them thinking about these things while they're still in the nest. Because if we don't, once they leave home, once they move on, um, then then you know the stats are not good in that area. And so we're trying to make this be a place, make, make TVC a place where we can have these kinds of questions and deal with these kinds of things. So I, I want to talk about, um, I think, another cause for why we doubt, and it's the idolatry of certainty. One of the biggest sources of doubt, I think, is that we want to prove everything with certainty, don't we? Some people, they won't believe anything without hard scientific Um, evidence that gives us proof. And I'm reminded of a quote by McGrath in the book. He says, to accept Jesus demands a leap of faith, but so does the decision to reject him. What he's, I think, trying to communicate is that there are, when someone is an unbeliever or a skeptic, they see Christians as Christians are standing on this pedestal of faith. And they see themselves, the, the skeptic, they see themselves as standing on this solid pillar of intellectualism and rational logic, reason. And I think what McGrath is trying to point out is that everyone stands on a pedestal of faith. No one can escape faith, even the unbeliever. So I can't, as a Christian, prove with scientific certainty that Jesus Christ is God. I can't prove that to you in that way. But someone who is not a believer and chooses not to believe that they can't prove that he's not. Every single one of us is in a place of faith. You can't escape faith. Even unbelief requires faith. So you and I can't just say that Christians are the ones that have the leap of faith and everyone else is exempt. That's not, that's not the case in reality. I think what lies behind this idolatry of certainty is we have this insatiable desire to know everything. And if we don't, some will say, if I can't understand everything about God, I'm not committing to him. Can you imagine if you treated all your human relationships like that? I don't understand my wife half the time. And she doesn't understand me half the time. But we still choose to be in a committed relationship, even though we don't know everything about the other. How much greater than is it should we expect God to be just a little bit incomprehensible? And yet we can still be in a relationship with him and know him. 
a loving relationship with him in spite of the fact that we don't know everything about him. In fact, we should not expect to know everything about him. The great St. Augustine once said, if you can fully comprehend God, then it's not God. If you can wrap your, our puny little minds around who God is fully, then it's not God. We've got some other figment of our imagination. And so I want to, as we think about this idolatry of certainty, I want us to be challenged that, that many of our doubts, I think, are caused by this expectation that we're going to know everything about him. And that's just simply not the case. It's not the case. I want to talk now about doubt's result. And if you write anything down this morning, it should be this next slide. Doubt produces depth. This, I think, is one of the many results of doubt. Doubt produces depth. I really believe that honest doubt drives you deeper. And we're going to show you how this plays out, I think, in in the life of a Christian. There's a quote by a man named Francis Bacon, whose uh, last name makes me hungry. And... He says this, if a man begins with certainty, he will end in doubts. But if he begins with doubts, he will end in certainty. I think what he's trying to say when it comes to the Christian faith is if you, if you come to Jesus with your head buried in the sand, just pretending to be certain about everything, you're going to end up in some doubt. But if you come to Jesus honest about your doubt, you will end in greater certainty. My wife and I, I think we met, uh, I think it was back in 2001, so do the math, 15 years ago. And we dated for four months, right when we first met, and then we broke up. Okay, correction, she broke up. She broke up with me. I know it's hard to believe, right? It's really hard to believe that. But she broke up, and what had happened was she had, um, I began, I was having doubts, not that she wasn't great, not that she wasn't the one. But I'd been burned before, and I was waiting for the shoe to drop. And so she knew, she was sensing my hesitancy, my doubt, and that fed into her doubt. And she began to ask questions like, well, I don't think he's taking this very seriously. So this led to one of the strangest breakup conversations of all time. Because she says to me, I don't think you're taking this very seriously, so I'm going to go ahead and end this relationship. And I'm now trying to prove to her that, no, I am taking this seriously, and this is why we should not break up, and so on. I mean, it was the strangest breakup ever. And for four months, you know, she ended it for four months, we had no contact. I was going to her house, middle of the night, trying to put flowers on her car, and let, it got creepy. <laughs> it got creepy. And then after, like, four months or so of us being apart, you know, she repented, and we got back together again. So God began to stir my heart towards her again, and I started, you know, calling. We had dinner, and so the rest is history, as they say. But here's what happened. Doubt led to certainty. We were willing to kind of deal with these things, and so doubt began to lead to certainty, even in the relationship. And I think there's something we can see in this, in this relationship Um, even human relations, a relationship that has stood up against doubt is deeper than one where doubt was never allowed. In relationships, doubt can drive you deeper. I think the same is true spiritually. I'm not for a moment suggesting that you go break up with Jesus. 
I'm not saying that this morning. But what I am trying to tell you today is that you've got to be honest about your doubt. You have to be honest about your doubt. Doubt is normal. It's a normal part of the Christian life. In fact, I do some premarital counseling here at the church occasionally, and the couples that make me nervous are the ones that say, we, ha- we never have arguments. Those couples scare me to death. Like, give me the couple any that says, hey, we have, we have some arguments and discussions, and it's tough. Like, give me the couple that has some doubts, and I can work with that. But the one that says, hey, everything here is good, that's the one that scares me because they're not dealing with stuff. And I think the same is true of us spiritually. And so I'd be more worried about a Christian if they said they had no doubts about their faith. Like, that, that person's not real. I'm not sure they even exist. And so I want to show you just a few passages today, just examples of what we're talking about. Look first at Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, we'll look at verse 16. This is a famous passage. Matthew 28, looking at verse uh, 16. And this is what it says. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." So just after the resurrection, these women see Jesus at the tomb, the risen Savior. They go tell the disciples, and then Jesus sends all of them to this mountain over in Galilee. Now imagine this scene. These 11 disciples are walking up this mountain, and they get to the top, and there he is, the risen Christ, right in front of them. In verse 17, I think, um, it says, when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. Some of them are so excited, they're so overjoyed to see the risen Christ. They see Jesus and they immediately believe it's him and they fall on their face and they worship him. They are so excited to see him, they can't even believe it. For others, they're so doubtful that it's him, they can't believe it. And so some worshiped and some doubted. Now, you might ask the question, well, how can they stand there and look at the resurrected Christ in doubt? I'm sure many of us have said things like, you know, if I could just have a face-to-face encounter with the risen Christ, I'm sure I'd have no problem believing. But here they are seeing Jesus face-to-face, and they're doubting. What is the story here? This passage is famous for being the Great Commission. This is, I mean, this is the the Great Commission, like where Jesus gets his voice real deep and he says to the disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This is a famous passage. How many of us have ever, ever heard the, the, the verse in 17 where it says, some doubted? Have heard a sermon on that verse, right? I mean, this is the Great Commission, but here we are with these men and their doubts. And here's what's amazing, I think, about this passage. When these people doubt, there's 11 disciples here, minus Judas, and these men are doubting, and it's not like Jesus 
says, all right, we're going to divide up here. We're going to put the worshipers over here and the doubters over here. And the worshipers, you're going to get the great commission. That's not what happens. Jesus looks even at the doubters and the worshipers, and he still gives them all the great commission. It's amazing. And I think that you and I should find some comfort in this. Knowing that if you're someone who doubts, like you're, you're not on some JVB team Christian, right? This is, Christ looks at you and still sees you as someone who's worthy because of his grace to fulfill the great commission. This should bring some comfort to us, I think, if you're someone that struggles with these kinds of things. The second kind of doubt I want to talk about this morning is what's called double-mindedness. We see this in James chapter 4, verse 8. And the word doubt is not in this passage, but the concept is there. And James 4, 8 says this. Let's turn to James chapter 4, verse 8. And it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The word double-minded comes from the Greek word disukos. Can you guess what English word comes from that word? Can you see that? Psycho. How do you feel the Bible just called all of us psychos? But what it's saying is that we're double-minded. We're, we're not single-minded. We're double-minded. And so often we are caught in the middle. We see the same concept in Romans chapter 6, verse uh, chapter 6 through 8, where Paul talks about the old self and the new self, especially in Romans chapter 7, where Paul's describing his own struggle with sin. Romans 6 is all about how when when you and I become a Christian, we are no longer under the power and the reign of sin any longer. Romans 7 talks about how it's still a struggle because you and I, we're no longer under sin's reign and power, but we still often live as if we are. And so we can often be double-minded people. On the one hand, we want to obey God, but we keep falling back into sin over and over again. But again, here's what I want you to see today, is that even this kind of doubt, double-mindedness, can lead us into a greater faith. And here's how this happens. Alistair McGrath, in his book, he says, doubt is a way in which God is able to deepen our faith by showing us our lack of faith. Now, what in the world does that mean? mean? How does our lack of faith deepen our faith? I thought these were polar opposites. Here's how this works. When you and I lack faith, if we're double-minded, here's how this works. When you realize you don't have it all together, this is the exact moment when you can lean in to the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. This is like the entry point into the gospel. When you, when you realize that, hey, I have, nothing, I have nothing to give to him. This is when you can lean into his grace and his mercy into the gospel, knowing that he is enough. Doubt is a way that God can deepen your faith by showing us our lack of faith. I mean, let's be honest. How many of you cling to Christ you sense your dependence upon Christ when you feel successful spiritually? Not me. When I feel successful spiritually, that's when I'm, I'm good. I'm good to go. I feel independent. But when I feel weak and broken and vulnerable, these are the moments when I feel like I need him. And this is when he grows your faith. Another writer I read said that doubt is like spiritual growing pains. Yeah, it hurts, but they're necessary. 
for growth spiritually. Thirdly, I want to talk about doubt as a state of mind. Who is the most famous doubter in the Bible? Thomas. Everyone knows that. I mean, the dude got a name after it, Doubting Thomas. So we know he's the the most famous doubter in the Bible. And we're going to see here in John chapter 20, verse 27, um, this is the interaction of Christ and Thomas after the resurrection, where it says, Then he said to Thomas, then Jesus said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. For some people, doubt was an attitude or like a way of life, and this is true for Thomas. And recently, I started thinking about, I was reading through the Gospels, and I started thinking about, um, I was reading through the story of Judas, and how Judas betrayed Christ, and everyone knows that story. And I started thinking about how amazing it is that Jesus, that God allowed Judas and a guy like Thomas to be one of the twelve. Have you thought about this before? Like when you think about Judas, someone who betrays Jesus, why couldn't Judas be someone who was like out on the periphery, like part of the story, but not like a central figure in the 12? Why was he one of the 12? Or why was Thomas one of the 12? This guy who was an incessant doubter. Why was he one of the 12? And it seemed to make no sense. And then as I'm reading the story about Thomas, I began to think about this. And I think this shows us several things about who God is. First, I think it shows us how gracious he is. I think it shows us how gracious he is that he would allow a betrayer in Judas and a doubter in Thomas to be one of the 12, to be in the inner circle of Jesus and his followers. Not on the periphery, but in the inner circle. I think it shows us how gracious he is. The second thing I think that it shows is it shows that the disciples were not gullible and naive people. People like to say things like, yeah, the, the disciples, they were, they were simple fishermen. They didn't, know what was, they didn't understand science. They didn't understand what was going on. They believe anything. And yet you see in the story that we see people like Thomas who doubt and question everything. And then thirdly, I think it shows us that God puts doubters in the story back then so he can reach doubters today. How comforting is it to open the Bible and see someone like Thomas who spent time with Jesus face to face, having questions and doubts when he is standing in front of the resurrected Savior. How comforting is it to know that as a Christian, if you're a Christian today, that God can handle some of your doubts. He can handle your doubts. And he's got this theme woven throughout his scriptures. Stories of people not believing and then coming to faith or questioning even if they are believers. And I think God wants us to know that he cares about you and he's, he's arguing for himself and he's trying to persuade you and bring you into the story that he's trying to write. So I think we can find some comfort in that this morning. And the fourth kind of doubt I want to talk to you about today is one that's very personal to me and it's doubting our faith. When I was in high school, I was 17 years old And I had a faith crisis in high school. And what happened was I went to a church that really emphasized like the invitation at the end of a service. And so people would come down to the front, they'd pray a prayer, they would, um, you know, get saved, so to speak. And that's how people did it in my church when I grew up. And this one Sunday, the pastor stood up before the church and he said, 
Instead of me preaching, I'm going to have someone share a testimony. And this man stood up in our church, and he was like a 20-year um, Sunday school veteran, like teacher. And he taught adults in our church. And this man stood before the church, and he said this. I want to let everyone know this morning that I just got saved this past Friday. I mean, you could feel the shockwaves in the church. I mean, I try to think of people in our church that would be similar, so I'm thinking of a couple names like Glenn Brindley or Rick Erickson or Skip Carruth, people that have taught classes here for years and years at our church. Can you imagine if those people in our church said, hey, I just got saved last Friday? I mean, it would send shockwaves. And that morning, there were people coming out of the woodwork to get saved because they were thinking, well, if that guy wasn't a Christian, then how do I know I am? And I began to wrestle with this, and I started asking questions like, how do I know I'm saved? And for three days, I didn't sleep, I didn't eat, and this is the middle of soccer season. It's not a good combination. And I was having questions and and doubting my faith, and I knew that God was real. But the question I was asking was, how do I know my faith is real? How can I prove that to myself? How do I know my faith is good enough or real enough or strong enough? And we see the disciples, I think, asking a little bit of a similar question in Luke chapter 17, verses 5 and 6, where it says, The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And he replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. The disciples see faith as a quantity issue. But what does Jesus' response tell us about faith? Well, I've got over here, um, I raided my wife's pantry and took some mustard seeds. And I've got them, I I don't expect you to be able to see these, these are tiny. They're the size of a ballpoint pen. But just to show you, can anyone see that? To my thumb, my finger, I know you can't see it. Pointless demonstration, right? But this is a mustard seed. Trust me, it's there. But when Christ says that, why does he compare faith to something as small as a must? I think what he's trying to communicate to the disciples is that the disciples see faith as a quantity issue. And he's trying to say faith is not about quantity. It's about small faith in a big God. So often you and I are asking the question, do I have enough faith? Is my faith real enough or strong enough or big enough? Is my faith good enough? And we turn faith into a work. Faith becomes about willing up this faith inside of ourselves. And this is not the picture that Jesus uses of what it means to be a Christian or to put your faith in him. He uses a picture of a tiny little mustard seed and says, if you and I have faith the size of a mustard seed, our limited tiny, small, mortal faith placed into a big, incredible, awesome, perfect God. This is a picture of the gospel. I can drop that mustard seed and you don't even see it. It's that unimpressive. And this is a picture of the gospel. The point is not, um, do I have enough faith? Am, am, Am I good enough? Am I faithful enough? That's not the point of the gospel. You and I are not saved by the amount of faith, but by the object of our faith. We do not have to have it all together to become a Christian or to grow as a Christian. 
You and I are not saved by some perfect faith. We're saved by placing our small, feeble faith in a perfect God. This is grace. This is the gospel. The church should not be a display case for shiny, perfect Christians. That's not the point of the church. So if you're someone who struggles with these kinds of questions and doubts, what do you do? What do you do with them? I want you to watch this um, story of someone here in our body. Let's go ahead and watch this video. So I came to Christ probably around sixth grade. And so when I did that, it was, it felt like it was a very simplistic faith. It wasn't very complicated. It wasn't that it wasn't authentic or real. But when I was in high school, I then started to face some deeper questions about my faith. The most significant one I feel like was, you know, how do I know everything in the Bible is true? And so I felt like in the church, those questions aren't always welcomed or aren't always answered very well sometimes, especially if they're coming from a professing believer. I think it's one thing if you get those questions from a non-believer, but to have a believer, you know, in the church asking, hey, you know, I'm just, not that I'm not sure about Jesus, but I'm not sure about this element or this, this part, or I need some clarification. And so those doubts, those, those sort of intellectual doubts about my faith started to, to boil over and I really wasn't sure what to do. And so finally, you know, I, I decided to meet with Dave, who was my youth pastor at the time. You know, to be quite frank, these, some, these Sunday school answers that, you know, people throw at these questions just aren't working for me. They're not sufficing. You know, it's not, well, Jesus is the answer. Well, yeah, that might be true, but why, you know, is it the answer? Why is, you know, whatever. And so Dave took those seriously, thankfully, and, you know, he didn't patronize me in in handling those doubts. He was actually really glad, you know, that I came into his office that day and talked to him about it. And so it wasn't that all of my questions and doubts were, were answered neatly and nicely into this perfect package, but rather I got a better understanding of God's complexity, God's sovereignty, and, and understanding sort of that narrative, that biblical narrative and, and, and God's purpose and God's, you know, like I said, complexity uh, almost put me in my place in a sense, but also gave me a better way to, to tackle these questions as they came up. So another factor in dealing with my intellectual doubt was some personal doubts in my faith that, that came up. And, and these were at different times in life, but... You know, growing up, I was raised in a single-parent household. Uh, my mom did a phenomenal job and continues to do a phenomenal job um, at just being a wonderful mother to me. And when I was two years old, uh, my dad was incarcerated uh, for some significant mistakes that he made. And as a two-year-old, you know, you don't quite understand the significance of that. And it wasn't until I was around 10 years old when another trial hit, and that was when I was diagnosed with the tumor in my skull. And so when this hit, you know, I started, even just at 10 years old, started to look at my life and, and, and being able to think more critically, look at the lives of my peers and say, wait a minute, you know, I have a great mom who does great things, you know, bust her butt working 50 hour weeks to support me and God, God does this. And, and it was in that though, that the good began to come out slowly but surely. And so with the tumor, I did eventually have an operation. They were able to remove it without many complications other than losing partial sight in my left eye. And with the loss of that sight, and this is, you know, might be a cheesy analogy, but I feel like I gained a better sight in my faith. And that was when I came to Christ was his sovereignty over that situation. And in that trial, my mom, rather than running away from God or questioning God, I think that 
really pushed her to, to God and to, to the church. And that's when we started to become regular members of TBC. Looking back and looking at that time, it was something that, that really pivoted my mom and then myself into, uh, into our faith and into a relationship with God. And, and even looking today, I look at the situation with my dad and realize, you know, he has, he's safe. He has an associate's degree. He has a relationship with Christ. My mom has a relationship with Christ. She's in a, she's in a godly marriage. You know, I, we've been blessed with, 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 with my stepdad in my life. And so all of those things would not have happened had these trials not happened. You know, had my dad not been incarcerated, you know, where would he be today? Would he be alive? You know, would he be a Christian? The way God worked in all of that is just incredible to me. And to this day, you know, I look back at that suffering and in that sort of time of doubt when all those trials just felt piled on and go, you know, that was, that was meaningful. There was purpose behind that. I'm going to embarrass Anthony this morning. He's actually at the back. Can you stand and wave Anthony there at the back? Give him a hand for sharing his story with us today. So I wanted that story to highlight a couple of things, that if we're going to handle these kinds of doubts, we have to be people that are honest about it. This also means that the church needs to be the, the kind of place where um, it's conducive to this kind of thing inside the church. And so I want to turn your attention to Jude, uh, verse 22, where it says, and have mercy on those who doubt. God is clear that he wants the church to be a place that people receive mercy in the midst of these kinds of questions and doubts. And if God wants the church to be a place where that kind of thing happens inside the church, if he wants us to have mercy on those who doubt, how much more does he want us to receive his mercy if we're the ones who are doubting? Let's pray. God, we just thank you that you're a God that, um, that puts up with us. You're a God that, that takes our small, tiny faith, Lord, and you do amazing things with it because we place it into you and who you are and your character. We thank you, God, that you're, that you're a God who wants us to be a people of mercy for those that are struggling, to be a people who are gracious and display this mercy and grace to the world and also to our church. We pray that our church becomes a place like this, Father. We thank you that, um, that there are already so many people here, Father, that, that are willing to wrestle and deal with these kinds of things. We thank you, Father, for your grace and your mercy in our lives. We love you. We praise you. In your, in your name we pray. Amen. Have an awesome week.